part of the reason Matt was prompting Joel, Joel has, um, doesn't love to be in front of a camera or a crowd. He was excited to be baptized. And I was thinking about how I've known, I've known Joel's, Joel's mom since she was born, known Matt for a long time, and just how the, the grace of God to, for a family where he was able to grow up hearing the gospel from birth and then come to Christ at a young age. And then I, this week I talked to two friends who came to Christ late in life and the grace of God to save them uh, years and years later and to, to save them after a lot of regret and save them from regret. So whether you came to Christ, you grew up in Christian homes, or whether you came to Christ later, the amount of grace is the same. It's immense grace. So imagine a, a small child trying to unravel the mystery of her parents' will. Why they say no to the cookie today but yes last week? It just makes no sense. Why did let my brother stay up late but not me? It's just not fair. Why'd they make me stay in my room? They're so mean. I mean, I was just throwing a little tantrum. Why'd they take me to the doctor? I told them I didn't want to get a shot. It hurts. They don't love me. And we tend to think of ourselves as children. We don't tend to think of ourselves as children. We're adults. We think of ourselves as responsible, capable, mature, smart, logical. We know how things should be done. But children, when questioning their parents, they don't think of themselves as children either. Their conclusions about what's right and fair makes perfect sense to them. And they believe that if their parents were truly wise and good, they would see it like they do. And we are, in fact, much more like children than we like to think. Our span of years and intelligence and experience are incredibly small. And we're either going to come to the place where we trust God or not. And if not, then we're going to continue to trust ourselves. And this is not a place that we arrive at. It's more about a direction. We're going to be growing and trusting God more and more, or we're going to be moving away from trusting him and trusting ourselves. We're never going to come to the place where we completely figure God out. What we know of God is because he's made himself known. But how much we can know is limited by our capacity. Imagine trying to fit the ocean into a Dixie cup. That's what it's like trying to fully understand God as a human. A Dixie cup full of ocean water contains real ocean water, but a very, very small part of the ocean. And what God has given us to know about him is true knowledge. It's enough knowledge to be saved and to live thriving lives, but it's not enough to ever position ourselves as his peers, certainly not as his judges. Job was confused by his suffering, and he went from trust when the suffering began, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, to confusion even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. In chapter 9, he's wrestling with, it's just not a fair fight. You can't win with God. He was confused. To the end, trust and renewed perspective. Job 42.5, my eyes, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And then he said something that confuses people. He said, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You say, well, wait a minute, that's not good to despise yourself We'll talk more about this next week, but the real problem for us is not feeling shame. Shame is a good thing when it leads us away from folly towards a thriving life. The problem is staying in shame when we don't need to, or trying to live as if shame is not real when there are shameful things for humans to think and do and become. Some, like Job, while in the middle of this crisis of faith, say God has set things up such that heads he wins and tails we lose. So, we're supposed to praise him either way. The whole thing is fixed. When he answers prayers like we want him to, 
we're supposed to say he's good and we're undeserving. When he doesn't answer prayers like we want him to, we're supposed to say he's good and we're undeserving. And we're supposed to dutifully, like mind-numb robots, trust him and praise him no matter what. That's how it gets framed in our minds. Let me reframe it. It's framed like this because we come to think of ourselves as God's near peers, or in some cases, his superior. If I were God, here's how I would do it. And the implications are he's doing it wrong. He's either not competent or he's not good or he's not there, or he's not who we've been told he is. I'll remake him into something that fits into my Dixie cup. And those are the things behind the deconstructing faith movement that's so in vogue. Truth be told, has always been in vogue. You can find it in 1 John. It's always been around. It's not new at all. It's rooted in the illusion that we are more than Dixie cups and God is less than the ocean. In reality, we are infinitely far from his greatness in every way. We are no more his peers than a dust speck is our peer. But, as Brenda read, he's chosen us. He's made us in his image. He's offered us his glory as his beloved. He does not want mindless robots. He does want kids who trust him. So back to the kid puzzling over her parents' will. So if you watch that child and that child doesn't understand her parents, maybe is mad at her parents, and then you look and that child is still trusting them, confused and yet still finds her greatest joy and comfort and purpose in relationship with that parent. I've watched many times, including just this weekend, as my grandchildren are told no by their parents and then they skulk away unhappy, I look up a short time later and that same child is nestled in that same parent's lap, secure, loved, and happy. Such is the way of a child. It's not heads a parent wins, tails a child loses. It's not a coin flip. It's about a child and a parent and trust. And the child that trusts a parent, even when she doesn't understand the parent, is no fool. It's simply a happy child, thriving child. Christy and I have a friend whose grown daughter was saved from serious injury in a car accident, and our friend gave thanks to God online for God's grace of protection. And our friend was criticized online for daring to be grateful. Things like, what about all those children who were not saved from injury and death in car wrecks? How careless, how selfish of you to be grateful for God's provision in your family. As if her gratitude also meant she had no compassion for others. It's not either or. Sadly, a few years later, our friend's daughter, the same daughter who'd been spared in one car crash, was killed in another one. Guess what? What do you think our friend did? She gave thanks to God for her daughter's life and confessed continued confidence in God and her daughter's death. So now, finding herself on the other side of God's will, so to speak, she continued to trust him. She's not a selfish, careless, naive fool. She's no mind-numb robot. She's mature and secure in her father's love. Let's go to James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Now, James in his letter is rebuking the church for confessing faith in God and in living as if God doesn't exist in the way they interact with one another. It's practical atheism. Confessed Christian, practical atheism. On the other hand, you see very often what I would call practical theism. Most, most atheists confess disbelief in God and then turn around and act as if God does exist. So when an atheist acts like there's meaning in their life or an atheist acts like there's real right and wrong, real ethics, 
They're acting as if God doesn't exist, though they say does exist, though they say he doesn't. This makes sense because God does exist, so the atheist cannot live in line with their professed beliefs. What's tragic is when Christians confess belief in God and then act practically as if he does not. And this just drives James crazy. It's part of what he calls double-mindedness in his letter. And it's literally double-souled because when we hear double-mind, we may think someone's kind of confused in their thinking. It's more about being conflicted in the depths of a person's being. They're undecided at the heart level. Who am I going to trust? Me, God, me, God, me, God. Go back to last week. James asked in chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his life. Real wisdom shows up externally in relationships, but is rooted internally in a heart oriented towards God. And so now he's asking the corresponding question for Christian community. What causes fights and quarrels among you? The answer is your heart does. Your insides are showing up on the outside. They always do. And the fights and quarrels between you are the result of conflicting desires inside of you. Wisdom inside of a person is going to result in certain kinds of choices and certain kinds of relationships. James is sometimes called the New Testament Proverbs, but he's not interested in wisdom per se, but the fruit of wisdom. He's interested in how wisdom shows up in the church and how lack of wisdom shows up in the church. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. It's interesting that James doesn't mention the issues under dispute. We probably would. You guys are fighting about this and this and this. And here's who's right and here's who's wrong. But the issue wasn't relevant to his point. Their hearts was his concern. And ironically, they were so concerned with winning their points, whatever those points were, he wasn't concerned at all at this point with their point. This happens in marriages and friendships. We feel so justified in winning our point, and God says, who cares? Look at your heart. James was concerned with their hearts, the place that the battles originate. Now, don't misapply James. He's saying something, but he's not saying something else. He's not saying truth doesn't matter. Battles, some battles, need to be fought. He was committed to the truth. And when truth dies, all hope for peace between people dies, let alone peace with God dies. But there's never a time when we are to fight for truth in a way that's out of line with our faith in Christ. We can't betray the truth in the defense of the truth. The 1940s, World War II was raging, and C.S. Lewis, who'd become a Christian about 10 years earlier, was already internationally known author and Christian apologist. He published The Problem of Pain in 1940, The Screwtape Letters in 42. He gave a series of talks during the heart of the war, 41 to 44, on the radio defending Christianity. It turned into his book, Mere Christianity. After World War II, in '47, he published his book, Miracles, and he was writing to counter the prevailing narrative that was growing, that all that exists is a natural world, there is no supernatural world, no God, no gospel. The next year, there was an up-and-coming philosopher named Elizabeth Anscombe, and it was unusual because females were just getting accepted into the academy. It was unusual to have a, a female philosopher at the time. And she was studying at Oxford, and she presented a paper at a club called the Socratic Club. And the club existed as a forum for discussing intellectual issues related to the Christian faith. And Anscombe's paper critiqued part of Lewis's argument in his book, Miracles. He had made a philosophical error. And in the meeting at the club, where she presented her paper, and Lewis was debating her paper, 
Lewis lost the debate to this young and then unknown female philosopher. So why do I bring this up? Anscombe was a believer. She wasn't attacking the reality of miracles. She believed in them. She saw a flaw in Lewis's argument and wanted to address it because the truth matters. So then Lewis, this internationally famous and revered author, he didn't say, who is this lady thinks she is? Who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? What he said was, you got me. You beat me. And then he rewrote the chapter for the next edition to address her concerns because the truth mattered more than his own self-image. Then he said, she needs to become the next president of the club. And unfortunately for us, he turned his mind to writing the children's series of Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if it's related to Anscombe, but I'm so glad he did because to me that's probably, I've read all of his stuff and I love the, the, the Narnia books. That's how it should be done. All that matters in the end is what's true. James is not denying this in his letter. He's dealing with the heart of the matter. His focus here is the battles on the outside come from the battles on the inside. Lewis and Anscombe demonstrated their hearts in their famous encounter. The truth won, and they both demonstrated Christian character in the process. Look at verse 2 again. You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. Were people in the church literally killing one another? I suppose it was possible, not probable. I mean, there were a group of people called the Zealots, who were religious terrorists, who did kill people. But I don't think James would have been so casual if he meant real murder. Hey, you guys watch yourself. I mean, you really shouldn't be killing each other in Sunday school. I don't think he would have been that casual about it. He was writing in line with the teaching of Jesus where he, Jesus wrote, said, if you hate someone in your heart, you've broken the do not murder command. However, it is true that real lives are lost every day because of human coveting. Murder in our cities rooted in a heart that covets. War in Ukraine rooted in a heart that covets. So there's always a direct line from a human heart to murder and violence. In Mark 15.10, it says that the chief priest delivered Jesus to Pilate to be murdered out of their envy. So James wants them to see the root cause of the problems in church is their own selfish desire. You say, well, but what if my desire for the is for the truth and not just for myself, that I'm justified in my passion and my activity. Well, if it really is about the truth and not self, then you're going to be prepared for others to disagree with you and maybe disregard you. You're not going to get bitter and demanding if you have to pay a price for the truth, if it really is about the truth and not about you. But James would say, bitter envy and selfish ambition shows, you may say it's about the truth, but it's about you. Last year, an officer in the military took what he believed to be a principled stand on an issue. Fair enough. You took your stand. You did what you think is right. Now, what do you expect to happen? What price are you willing to pay for your belief in what's true? Well, then he went on the news, complained about how he's being mistreated. He threatened legal action. And so think about this. I'm going to take a principled stand on the truth, but it better not cost me anything. And, and I'm going to come after you if you disagree with me. That's exactly the kind of heart James was going after. And James would put his money where his mouth is. He was going to be killed for his faith soon after he wrote this letter. He was more than willing to take principal stands on the truth. But he was pushing the church to live with Christ's principles in everything, which would obviously preclude being covetous and demanding. And so James writes, you want something but don't get it. You covet, quarrel, and assassinate others with your words. And so the pull of these people relationally would have been, what do you mean no? Well, what do you mean no? Well, what do you mean no? 
Whatever the exact circumstances of the situation, they're demanding that others and God do things their way. And they're furious when others and God don't comply. You don't have, he said, because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend what you get on your own pleasures. So here's why you don't have what you want. You don't even ask God. And so, well, yeah, I did. I asked him. And he said, no. Well, that's because your heart is messed up. So what are we to think about prayer then? Some people have pulled this verse out and, and built the theology of prayer around it. What are we to do? You know, my heart is always going to be somewhat messed up. My motives are always going to be mixed, this side of heaven. So should I even ask God for anything? Maybe James sees that question coming. So very shortly in his letter, he's going to write about Elijah, and he'll say Elijah was just like us. His heart was a mixed bag, just like yours is. And God answered his prayers in spectacular ways. The point here in chapter 4 is not so much about how to get your prayers answered, but evaluating your heart. The problem here was you're not even asking God. That's how far your heart is away from him. And then when you do ask, then obviously God's not going to answer because look at your heart. And it's not about it's wrong to have desires. It's not about it's wrong to ask God for what pleases us. But the word translated desires here that are at war within us in verse 1 and then translated pleasures in verse 3 come from the same Greek word and we get our word hedonism from it. Hedonism as a philosophy is a belief that pleasure, my pleasure, is my highest good. And so this is about making life about me, what I want. And, if, and think about it. If I'm making life about me and you're making life about you, how do you think it's going to go between us? It's not going to go very well. Philippians 2, each of you should put the interests of others ahead of your own. How do you think it's going to go if I'm trying to put your interests first and you're trying to put my interests first? What happens in relationships? Every time that's tried, and it is tried sometimes, beauty and thriving follow. So in regards to prayer, Jesus said in, in Matthew 7, ask and it shall be given to you. And he balanced that in Matthew 6 with this is how you should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I don't think we should overthink prayer. We should ask God for what we want and learn to trust God for what he gives. But I don't think James's focus here is, is on prayer. It's look at what's happening around you. Look at what's happening inside of you. The dissension between you is because of the dissension in your own heart. Your heart's divided. If your heart were not divided, if your heart was surrendered to Christ, then instead of the envy and fighting, you would simply be asking your Father for what you desire, and then you wouldn't be mad and divisive. You would trust God for what He gives. But evidently, they weren't doing much asking. He said, you don't have because you're not even asking God. And then when you are asking God, you're trying to play this game with Him. God, you give me what I want. Well, obviously God's going to say no. So maybe they just wandered so far from God that they lacked, they didn't live in this relational intimacy where they were just asking God as they moved through life and trusting God with outcomes. We don't have to have perfect hearts to ask God for what we desire. But if our hearts are 180 degrees out of phase from God, then we're probably not even asking. And if we are asking, then surely God's not going to answer that prayer. What we find is when people are living as practical atheists, taking life in their own hands, they're mucking up relationships all around them. They're continually getting hurt and petty and angry when others don't bow to our demands. 
if we were to ask God to comply with our selfish demands, of course he's going to say no. So let's move to a conclusion. God used Winston Churchill to help save England and the wider world from disaster, of course, the same time that Lewis was writing most of his books. And Churchill did believe in God, but he did not believe Jesus Christ was divine. He'd grown up in an Anglican and a Christian background, but he just thought Jesus was a wise teacher. He wasn't a Christian himself. Churchill believed God was largely focused on Churchill. One biographer wrote, Although Churchill believed in an almighty, the role of the supreme being in his theology seems to have been primarily to look after the safety of Winston Churchill. And you can see why he came to believe this. He had this sense of destiny early on. He was in three car crashes, two plane crashes. He was in a house that burned to the ground. He almost drowned. He was stabbed. He got sick a lot of times, had a bunch of heart attacks. Oh, and by the way, he fought in four wars. He went into what was called no man's land in World War I 30 times, and most people didn't survive one time. So you can kind of see why he thought, you know, God's looking after me. But the problem was, God didn't exist for Churchill. Churchill existed for God's purposes. And there are not many humans in history with Churchill's fame and his global impact, but there are a lot of people, I think, who believe, who live with his theology. God exists for my purposes. He exists to keep me safe or he exists to keep me or make me happy. So we're back to where we began. Part of the journey of a child to adult is to understand that though her parents love and care for her, life can't just be about her. And part of the difficulty of a child understanding a parent is that the young child's world is entirely focused on self. Everybody around exists to serve your highness, me, you know, this child. The world itself, such as they understand it, revolves around them. This is in fact, good and normal. And when a young, very young child's needs are not met by loving parents, when the world for a young child feels unsafe, that child doesn't develop in healthy ways. The ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences, are built around this tearing of a child's world and making it very unsafe, and it impacts them potentially the rest of their lives. But at the same time, on the other hand, as a child grows, if that child continues to be treated as the center of the universe... This child's not going to develop into a healthy adult. This leads to very unhappy people, both the the grown child and everyone around it. And what will happen to the child who doesn't learn to order their inner world to not make life around them, about them, is they're going to go from one train wreck of relationship to another. And sadly, we've seen this, I've seen this many times. What's inside always shows up on the outside. And James is encouraging, rebuking. If you think this is strong, wait till next week, what he writes. He's challenging a church made up of fairly young Christians to grow up. Yes, Jesus died for you. That's how precious you are. Now grow up. Move into adulthood. It's not about you. When you make life about you, it's crazy. It doesn't work. It shows up in broken relationships. There's no wisdom there. There's no, who is wise and understanding among you? Okay, well then show it. Show it out here. Selfishness is a universally failed method for personal happiness. He says, stop trying it. Everybody's trying it. It's not working for anybody. Jesus, on the other hand, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. You guys have the possibility, James saying, for real joy, but it's going to be laying your life down for others. The problems around you, or because of the problems inside of you. You're not fully decided in here. You're double-hearted. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to live for? 
So we're going to take a few time, a few minutes now to, for all of us, do personal application. I had the advantage of doing this multiple times this week as I was, as I was digesting this passage and the Lord was working on me. So I'm going to give you a chance to, to have that same benefit. So if, you, if, you, if you'd bow your heads or whatever posture of prayer you like, and we're just going to spend some time repenting. And the Bible says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Repentance is not feeling guilty. We are guilty. Repentance is the opportunity to turn away from our own foolish, destructive ways and turn towards God's beautiful, good ways. And so I'm going to give you a chance to do that now. So let me, let me pray, and then I'm going to let you have your time. If you've not committed your life to Christ or you're unsure about where you stand with him, I'm going to pray a prayer. Nothing magic about the words, but if this is the authentic cry of your heart, then God will hear and respond. You can pray something like this. You can just pray it silently. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I do believe you rose from the dead, that you are who you say you are. You're the Savior. And so right now, I transfer trust, as best I know how, from myself to you. Please save me. Enter my life. Bring your spirit into my life and change me. If there's some besetting, ongoing sin that you're holding on to, you know full well it's not making you happy. It's an anchor. So confess that again to God. Give it to him again. And then finally, if there's brokenness between you and someone else, it very well may be that you have no say in that. And if if that's the case, then just ask God to help them. But if you do have a role in that, then repent. Ask God to forgive you and purpose to go and make that right. I'm going to give you some time to just talk to God and then we're going to worship him together.